Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. I'm Brian Austin Green. I'm Shauna Burgess. And I'm Randy Spelling. And you are listening to Oldish, an iHeartRadio podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Oldish. Yeah. Hi, you guys. Good to be here. I'm excited for today. Hi. Oh, I super am super excited for today, right? This is uh this is a big one. We have a, an unbelievable guest. I'm super excited. I reached out to him a while ago. He's a busy, busy guy. And luckily, he's here today. Yes. It's a big day for us. Yes. It is a big day. Who have we got, baby? So when I was younger, like early 90s, I ended up being a guest probably a dozen or so times on on a radio show here in Los Angeles on K-Rock called Loveline. And there were two people that were a part of it. There was a poor man and then uh, Adam Carolla switched over. So you had the two different DJs, but then this man was involved from the very beginning. And so we got to know each other uh, really well. He's a huge inspiration for me for this podcast. It was it was kind of the idea when I first reached out to, to Randy uh, on this. I, I told him, I said, I did this show Loveline when I was younger. I loved doing it. And I would love to figure out some way of using podcasting and this new, this new media and this new thing and uh, bringing the old into the new. And this guy was just a huge part of what has now become my love and my passion for helping people and uh, connecting and sharing life. And he's done a lot of stuff. Oh yeah. He did a show, Celebrity Rehab. He used to host that which was really, really an amazing show. He just recently, I ran into him because he's also been hosting these reunion specials and he hosted the reunion for uh, Special Forces season two. He was on season one of it. He he hosted the reunion special for Teen Mom, Teen Mom 2, uh, Teen Mom 3. He, he now has multiple podcasts, the Dr. Drew podcast, Dr. Drew After Dark, Ask Dr. Drew, and he's doing another show with Adam Carolla. It's the Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew show. Is that four podcasts? I, wow, he is a busy <laughs> One, man. Wow. Two, three, four, yeah, four <laughs> podcasts. And and we're lucky, lucky enough to have him here. So I say we get him in here because I know he has a hard out. He has to get out of here soon. 
And we're super, again, super happy and grateful to have him. So please welcome Dr. Drew Pinsky. Hey, all the oldies. Oh, there he is. What an entrance. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here. The three of us are super excited to have you. It is my privilege. And Brian, one of the joys of of the many different kinds of feelings I have about that Special Forces project, (laughs) reconnecting with you was a major piece of uh, good feeling about it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because we hadn't uh, hadn't seen each other in years. I was just telling people that one of the inspirations for Oldish, for this podcast that we're doing, was Loveline. I literally in the middle of the night had this idea pop into my head and I was like, I, I want to do a new version, but within podcasting and so, you know, somehow be able to incorporate audience and, and listeners and all of that. I've known Randy forever. Sharna is, is my fiance. And so reaching out to you was kind of like the Hail Mary sort of full oh, circle. Hail, Hail Mary. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm, I'm all, all in. Give me a break. No. It was no, it was a it was a big deal for me. I'm I'm super, super excited to uh to have I him. can confirm, Dr. Drew, that he has been very, very excited. How long did it take me to respond? It was like one minute, of course. Tell me where to go. Let's get it done. <laughs> and and then lucky enough, you got to do it from your house. You got to yes, do it from indeed. the studio that your indeed. wife set up. So so yeah, you're doing well. You're living well. Can we first, before we kind of get into a little bit more of you? Just talk about the origin of Loveline itself, which is where we met. Uh, You started doing the show in 1984, but it started in 83. Oh my God. Did you, were you first there in 84? Is that right? No, I was there early nineties. You you guys had been doing the show for a while before I got there. Yeah. 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 So as best I can, and again, there's a lot of craziness around the the show. There were lawsuits and things. And so mm. I, I can only be sort of, I think, vague in terms okay. of describing how the thing evolved. But and my understanding is um, it was they needed a community service show. You For your FCC license, you're required to create a community service show. Uh, okay. And uh, Eagle and the poor man were sort of ruminating about that. And they said, oh, we could be, we could do it. We could be the community service and answer <laughs> questions, you know, be, be uh, two friends that happen to be, you know, available to our listeners. And uh, the program director was like, okay. We, we need quite, somebody real. It's not community <laughs> service yet, but you will give you midnight on Sunday night to 3 a.m. Monday morning. Figure it out. So this is a long story, guys. It's a very long story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it as short as possible. Okay. But in any event, they were trying to figure out how to make a community service show. And so I was starting to listen to the station. I lived 300 yards away from the station. And so did a lot of my friends. And so people started meeting people at the station and getting interested in it because it was right there right. in Pasadena. And uh, and I got a call from a friend of mine. He said, hey, you know the radio station? Are you listening? Yeah, we're all listening now. Yeah. Well, they got this show and they're taking calls and they need it to be community service. And they want you to do a segment called Ask a Surgeon. It'll be really funny. You'll It'll be great. I'm like, why the fuck are you calling me? Excuse me. I don't know if we can see <laughs> yeah. those words yeah, yeah. podcast. Yeah. Why are you calling me? Uh, what do you mean? And I eventually met and was convinced to go up. And the first night I went up there with my gynecology text and my infectious disease text, it was yeah. I was so scared. And I and I was being presented as a doctor and I was still yeah. fourth year medical student and all this stuff. It was just very uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And uh, but I was I here we were in the middle of the night, and the most important healthcare questions of young adults and adolescents were being laid out to FM disc jockeys in the middle of the night. I'm like, Oh my God, Mm -hmm. I have to come back and and, and answer these questions. This is amazing. 
And I immediately understood what was going on. I was 24 years old and I thought, well, of course, in this, we've just been through, quote, the sexual revolution, unquote. And as far as the adults in America were concerned, adolescents are not having sex. Why would adolescents have sex? Adults do that. Adolescents don't do that. And I thought, oh, my God, they don't, they don't, they don't there's nowhere for them to go. They have all these questions. And it's so simple. It's so easy to understand how to get a condom, what a condom does, how to use birth control, how, what STDs are and how they are. It was all shrouded behind secrecy. To get a condom, you had to ask the pharmacist to bring it forward from behind the counter, literally. You have to wow. line up with wow. people with blue hair getting their hypertensive meds. Yeah. And um, and I thought, wow, this is this is so ridiculous. And what really got, went home for me and, and got driven home over the next few weeks when I kept coming back, because I said, can I come back? You know, I just want to come back and answer these questions. What really stood out for me was no one was discussing HIV. Well, what we had just started calling AIDS. We were calling it GRIDS, gay-related intestinal disease syndrome. We started calling it AIDS about a year before, maybe two years before. We now had a causative agent, which we called at that time HTLV3. The term safe sex hadn't been coined yet. And my hero at the time, Anthony Fauci, was pushing us younger physicians to go out, it's a name you've heard lately, Anthony Fauci, oh, to yeah. go out there and educate about this thing. And no one was talking to young people, and it was considered bizarre to do so. Think about how wow. much history people don't, you got to appreciate that historical context. And I was dealing with AIDS patients hand over fist, and it only became more so as time went on. That was primarily what I was doing as a resident and later in medical school. You just saw lots of AIDS patients. And so I just thought it was so important. I did it. It was one night a week. I would sort of sit there from noon, midnight to one, or eventually the time frame switched to like 11 to two, but at one o'clock or two in the morning, I'd go home. I, if I was on call, I wouldn't come in. I thought I was doing community service. I did it for 10 years for free. And then mm. it sort of caught on and I was, you know, I had to kind of, uh, I had to stop at one point because my residency director told me that there was something wrong with me. How dare I? Who did I think I was? And I stopped for about six months. And in that six month window, it's really interesting. Again, the history was evolving. We went from that's a bizarre thing to do for a young doctor to get up there. And I was a doctor at that point and talk about these things. It went from that to all doctors have a mandate to go out and talk about this in six wow. Yeah. And literally by my third year residency, the same guy that had tried to kick nearly kick me out of my program for daring to talk about this in public. Ran into me in the hall. He made me his chief resident a year later. Ran into me in the hall and goes, Are you still doing that radio show? I was like, Yeah. I thought here it comes. He's going to try and get me again. He goes, He goes, I'll tell you what. How about I take over now? He, I, I'll do it for you. It's no problem. I'll, I'll take over. I was like, Oh my God. You were such an asshole. I can't believe you. I can't believe you destroyed me as a young resident intern. And, and now you're trying to take think there's job. nothing of just, just taking over this thing that I very carefully. And I and I, I learned. Well, here's what I learned from that: was don't ever doubt the instincts of a young person. Young people yeah. see things very, very clearly that that you don't see when you're older. And just yeah. listen to them. Just don't don't crush them for their points of view. Just listen. They they're onto something usually. That show was so interesting to do as it because I lived I, uh, K Rock had moved to Burbank. Yeah, I think it was right. It was right over. The, and I lived probably three minutes away 
from the station. So I was sort of the last minute call of like, Hey, we don't have a guest. Can you come in? Well, I was you like, were also of one course. of our favorite because not only were you young and you yeah. were, you know, you understood what we were doing, but you were enthusiastic. You liked doing it. And we liked that. And we liked you and we liked, and you'd haul your other castmates in with you once. In a yeah. While. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would drag, I would drag everybody up there. That's oh my so God. Cute. That's amazing. So, so now how, uh, how have things, have you, have you noticed obviously a huge difference in the trends from the eighties and the nineties and mm. the two thousands to now? Yeah. What noticeably has changed from, from what you've seen the most? As far as which, which topic? As far as people's struggles in general, I think, I, I mean, eight yeah. is, was huge obviously back then and new, but I feel like as time has, has gone on, we have new things that come in, new awarenesses. Oh, sure. We have a big, a, a huge mental health Social struggle. Social media and mental health. How it's health. affected everyone. Yeah. Uh, there, no, you guys so many zeroed right things. in. That, that, that's the, that's the, that's the zone. And it, it in the 90s and 2000s, what I was seeing was the consequence of childhood trauma. We, we, mm. we children were more mistreated than, than we're really coming to terms with. We finally, in my profession, developed what's called the adverse childhood experience scale. It took us like 10 years to acknowledge that, oh, adverse childhood experiences affect mental and physical health in adulthood. Shocking. Like, oh, wow. yeah, no shit. Uh, I was I was screaming about it for years and years and years, yeah. and 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 by the way, it it puts rocket fuel behind addictive pathology. I mean, it. I've always said if you have bad enough addiction mm -hmm. that you had to come to my program, you had childhood trauma. Period. Mm -hmm. It was always the case, and so we went through that whole thing, uh, and that seemed to have gotten better. The problem with that is that it's left a residua on adults uh and there's been kind of a narcissistic turn cluster b personalities borderline sociopath narcissist a lot more of that stuff flying around and the liability of that stuff is mob behavior people with those things tend to be very gratified with grandiosity and acting out in mobs with their aggression so i kept predicting that uh, I did not know about this thing called social media when I was trying to predict us. I, I kept saying, you know, when this happens, guillotines come out. They're going to be a guillotine. I know it. There's going to be some right. sort of scapegoating. And social media, cancellation, there it is. Right. And so that phenomenon of uh, sort of projecting yourself into the world, preoccupied with, with screens, not getting engaged in space, with bodies in space, with other people, lockdowns and COVID and the fear and anxiety of all that. I mean, it was a perfect storm of screwing with people's mental well-being and mental health. And so addiction is up, depression is up, anxiety is up, everything is up. And that, that to me is the major issue of our time. I, I'm, I feel, I'm hoping that young people that have been, and again, we're talking about younger people, younger than ourselves mostly right now, who have been through this, I hope they come out of it pissed. They should be pissed. They, they were not their well-being. Their both their their spiritual, physical, mental health was not a priority to anybody, and yes. it should have been, and they should be pissed about that. Because I knew it was going to happen. I could see it coming, and it came. And and now here we are. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. 
This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dr. Drew, I have a question for you, because I know before you were saying coming out of medical school and dealing with the uh, the AIDS crisis, you know, Anthony Fauci was so involved in that. Yeah. And then when COVID happened and the lockdowns happened, he was also seemingly at the forefront yep. suggesting these things. I just have to ask this. Did, did your viewpoint of him change through the years or do yeah. you still feel the same way that you, you know, did pull your punches I, I know where we're going okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, we're just oh, meeting for the first time i mean i grew I up listening to your show so you, you know anything. i want to be respectful don't worry don't worry uh it's I, i've been brian's friend for a long time doesn't that tell you something okay. I, I, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. Fair enough. <laughs> so so I started the pandemic. You will not find videos of me anywhere saying this because the people that were trying to cancel me cut this out of every video they saw, mm -hmm. they, they put out. What I said was, hey guys, 
I, I thought the press was trying to create the panic. I thought they were trying to capitalize on the moment by capturing eyes, by inducing panic in the public. And I know, knew that panic could not make things better, could only make things worse. I didn't know the government was involved with it. I didn't know that at the time. But mm. So I felt like I was fighting the press. And I kept saying, don't listen to them. Just don't listen to the press. Listen to the CDC. Listen to Fauci. They will get us through this. Because they always had. Throughout my career, these were the these were the my rocks these were i mean i looked to these or the cdc and to dr fauci for guidance i mean it just they, they were exceptional um something happened during covid something they got adulterated in some way um i was wrong the, the cdc started getting saying things that were just not accurate and i and were confusing and continue to say things that mm -hmm. are confusing mm -hmm. dr fauci used the aids playbook uh, and it was and it was antiquated and not appropriate to. The, I think that's how we got into trouble here, which is he was using a playbook when we had only radio and television, and then you had to create very specific narrow messages that everybody had to repeat. And this was actually wrong, but we congratulated ourselves for doing it. Back then, we used fear. We used fear to to push the position that AIDS is, you know, everybody can get AIDS, not just risk populations. And mm -hmm. we scared all generation people. And then we congratulated ourselves that we didn't have more deaths. Like, look, mm -hmm. we, did it. we kept it in just in the risk groups. It never broke out really in, in a big way. And we thought now in the course of it, we actually learned that uh, fear wasn't a great way to change health behavior, particularly for young people. What changes health behavior is cases, things like Loveline, things like you're doing here, talking to people who are, who are relatable, who are experiencing these things that may have made bad choices and what their consequences were as a result of that. Some music, some humor on top of that, and you got it. That's how you. That's how young people change their behavior. They're smart. They they can learn the information from somebody like me, but they won't change their behavior unless they've got sort of something from their from their peers, essentially, that they can relate to. Uh, and that was not used as at all during mm -hmm. COVID. It was just odd to me that we threw all, that was a discipline that developed over 10 years, just tossed that away and went back to fear and fear on a scale that was just unconscionable, frankly, uh, and inappropriate and, and destructive. And that's what I was talking about with the mental health consequence. It was very predictable, particularly eight to 15 year olds take them away from their peers and tell them that to in this in this state in this city in particular told to shelter in place like there's a nuclear incoming weapon right. to a 12 year old or a nine year old and if they don't shelter in place they're going to kill their parents and grandparents oh my god how right. I mean how how a great way to destroy the well-being of an entire generation so i i i have i have notes let's say i have notes you have notes yeah. oh i'd love to hear those notes so what do you see as the correlation now with the symptoms that are coming even from that in younger people in in adults what what has been on the rise is has there been anything that has lowered because of this or is it just everything's on the rise Every, well some people Everything's on the rise. Bottom line, yeah. uh, some people, <laughs> some people were able to spend more time with family and got more felt more connected, even though their education was aborted for a while. And and there are people that made it through without trouble, but the majority was given screens, exposed to pornography and sexting all day, mm -hmm. uh, and and then told to shelter in place and that everybody's going to die. I, I, 
Mm-hmm. Just, of course, that's going to create anxiety and depression, of course. And particularly restricting them from their peers. I mean, that age group needs their peers to develop. And I, I, you know, I think we will come out of it, but it's going to take a lot. And we are not doing a great job at healthcare, mental health care delivery. We have a shortage, we have a shortage of psychiatrists. We have a lack of resources. Uh, generally, it's just it's very daunting to talk about. I, I get upset when I think about it. Frankly, can you talk to us about this? I, I'm just curious about the mental health because this is such a topic, right? There's shootings almost every day, and it's sort of like it's either guns or it's mental health. Yeah. Um, or both. Or both. The, how, what just happened in Maine? That was that was the most recent. Right. Like, was... like what solutions? Because I know you were over there thinking of solutions. What are some solutions that we have to some of the, the mental health crisis that's going on? Right. So, so the big outlying real brain disorders, the real, the people on the streets, the people shooting people up and then shooting themselves. These are major mental illness. These are serious mental illness. And the laws in this country prevent us from treating them, prevent us. That dude in Maine was on a 14 day hold just prior to going out and shooting everybody. He should have been in some sort of longer term setting, but you are the, the civil liberties have gone to the point where you are allowing people to die on the street with a disorder that's affecting their ability to see what's happening to them. And you're not allowed to go help them. Strangely, the same symptom complex from a dementia, if you don't help them, you've committed patient abuse and yet dementias do not get better. They are inexorable. All the mental illnesses that we are forbidden from treating can be, if not cured, dramatically improved, dramatically. And we are we have a shortage of psychiatrists, so we can bear, we can't really do it. We have no facilities to do it. We have no resources to do it, and the laws prevent us from doing it. What do you think is going to happen? We are right. the only country in the world that do, refuses to take care of sick people if the illness involves the brain. Unless it's dementia or encephalopathy, then you can do it. But any other brain diseases, you're not allowed to touch because who are you to say they live? It's the life they want to live, man. So is oh. is that because of it? And forgive me, because I'm Australian. So the the constitution for me, when I look at it, I feel like brings so many things. Is that a constitutional thing? Is that why they say we can't treat them? It's their their freedom or their right to choose not Correct, to. Correct, but it's an interpretation and multiple laws put in place. It's look, it it all came from the 1960s, right? In the 1960s, we had a director of the National Institute of Mental Health who had never been in a psychiatric hospital and who believed that institutions caused mental illness. Oh he got the ear of President Kennedy, got him to sign a, a series of laws that put the hospitals out of business, destroyed them, and created community mental health centers, which were abject failures. So now you have all these people with severe mental illness being spilled out onto the streets, the prisons, and the nursing homes, and no plan for what to do with them. Then you have a group of lawyers that came in and said, who are you to get in the way of what they, how they want to live, man? They, they don't want your care. And in their heads, they have Ken Kesey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which became a movie, which the American public treated as though it was a documentary. And not only did they or were psychiatric hospitals not really like that then, 
We're coming in on 75 years ago. We're approaching 100 years ago. Believe me, psychiatric care is different than it right. was in the 1950s. It is totally different. We can create community resources. We can create residential programs that are beautiful. We have all kinds of treatments at our disposal that work. It is not Ken Kesey's world. And the 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 campaigning, the... the um, do-gooder lawyers who who I admire and understand what they're trying to do have that in their head and have privileged the illness over the ability to treat the illness. And on the streets of LA County, where most of us live, six are dying every day. And we are not allowed to do anything about that. My gosh, it's infuriating. It's infuriating it because is. I look I look out on the streets and I see my patients and I know exactly right. I know mm -hmm. I told them the county health people, I said, I, I, I know how to build a program. I know exactly what I would do. I know how I'd staff it. I know how we would fund it. I, I just know I just know what to do for these people. I know right. I know how to do it. I've done it for decades. It's not hard. Mm -hmm. And the main, I'll tell you on the addiction side, the main thing they leave out of their assessment, most of it is opiate meth, right? Which are mm -hmm. devastating addictions but they are progressive illnesses in all settings. The progressivity is what nobody acknowledges. So even if I, let's say one of you got heroin addiction, let's say I injected your heroin every four hours and did it per perfectly sterilely and we made we controlled your behaviors and everything, your disease will still progress. Maybe not as fast as out in the wild, but it will always progress when exposed to the chemical. And they refuse to acknowledge that. And they and it progresses and ends in death. And I say that is manslaughter. That is reckless negligence. And unfortunately, all these, back to the Constitution, your question about how our laws work, our elected leaders have immunity. They have qualified immunity, so you can't, you can't go after them for killing people. Right. Oh. That that is a rabbit hole. That's a rabbit hole to go down. Yeah. But that is you guys invited me here. You asked me. Oh, to I no, love it. No, no, this is this is amazing. It's great because it's some of these institutions that you talk about that have immunity that cannot be sued. I mean, there's even drug companies and pharmaceutical companies that cannot get sued. In that, I mean, oh, that is something that so, is kind of mind blowing. It's mind blowing. And you know, who really raised my understanding of this capture, of course, is, you know, you may not want him as a presidential candidate, but it is love that he's out there stirring shit up, which is RFK Jr. He mm -hmm. taught me about this. I didn't know anything about that. And he, he raised my and showed me, I was like, Oh my God, you are so right. And so I love that he's out there stirring it up. I don't know that he should be our president yet. I don't know, but I don't know what the hell. I, I think I'm not going to vote for president this time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave. That, yeah. I'm going to stay home. You know, it's <laughs> so interesting from ahead. the the RFK Jr. standpoint because some people who have been following him and listening to him are all about what he's saying, and then there are other people who will completely cancel and say, I don't, I don't even want to hear anything he's saying. I won't take that in because it's sort of in a way what he's talking about is looking at a matrix and looking at something that if you take that in and you actually entertain what that means, everything starts to crumble around and it feels too big or almost sinister to even look at. There's a lot of that kind of cognitive dissonance flying around these days where people are maintaining positions that are not I don't want to say they're irrational, but I, they're they're irrationally certain. We live in a day of irrational certainty when it really the scientific method is about rational 
uncertainty. I am rashly uncertain about everything. I, I just try to learn more, try to be, uns I, I don't know, I'm tr struggling, I'm trying to figure stuff out. I don't understand why we're pushing vaccines on 25-year-old males if the risk of the vaccine is a little bit higher. than the, I, I don't understand. I, I, my elderly patients are all vaccinated I, and they benefited and I get why I'm doing it there. It's the data's there. But but to, to go, you know, it's all this way or it's all that way, that's rationally, irrationally certain. And that's bound to be a problem. And then people protect that with cognitive dissonance, right? They can't, they get so invested in it. It just, like you said, everything melts around them when they, when they contemplate something different. It doesn't have to be like that. You can contemplate something different and go, all right, maybe that's not all there. there is. This is another way of looking at things. And it's, there's, a, there's we just got to get all the information we can. And that helps us approximate reality, approximate the truth. It's not, it's not about being right. Yeah, some yeah. of the critical thinking. I'm giving Brian a headache. No, <laughs> it, this is the best. So, it's it's honestly just maddening. It, it it's, I, I, Sharon and I have these conversations all the time. We, we have them as far as gun control, but then pro life. I mean, we have just all of these. It's hard, things, right? It's, it's super. It just hard. doesn't make any sense because yeah. it's like you've got you you can have these two these two views that honestly, it's amazing that one party. Or, or the other can have those views, but they don't work together. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like, uh, okay. Think same contradictory. Um, pro-life. Okay. Are we pro-life? Are, are we pro-actual life or are we pro-fetus life? Like what is the, what is the determination there? Then if we're talking about gun control, how far are we going to take it to make sure that life is protected? You know, yeah. if that is honestly your concern, yeah. but it's maddening because those, those things are just constantly coming up. And it's like, I, how do you, how do you fix this? System well, where okay. You guys kind of, you keep asking me to fix it and it, it is tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just we seem are like the man to, to do it, it Dr. Jerk. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. It, let me, let me give you a simple fix. Cause I, I think you, you got to start with the basics. And I just finished a conversation, long conversation with a very fine psychiatrist, and, and I brought this up to him and he agreed. The golden rule, just let's let's reestablish the golden rule. Treat other people the way you'd want to be treated. We have lost that completely. Mm, yes. That is a very yes. and and if so you good. if you really apply that, it builds empathy. And if you build yeah. empathy, you're not going to be so shitty and grandiose. <laughs> you know, you're going to, you're going to be in maybe be a little less distracted and a little more focused on other people, but the golden rule I, and how we get there and how we get to sort of some sort of spiritual something, whatever that is for people. I, I think it's about community. I think it's about other humans. I think it's about building relationships, about getting off our screens, but, but paying attention paying attention to the golden rule. Like they, they think, think what people I'm always, you know, that some people say about me on Twitter and stuff. I just go, how, what made you run to the phone and do that? It's just such an odd. Right. And if you had the gold yeah. rule near you in near right. your consciousness, I don't right. see how you could do that. Right. Wow. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper 
into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. To continue on um, solutions and the things we can control, because my brain likes this, when we go into rabbit holes of like, holy (laughs) shit, I don't know how to handle it. I need to like come back into the things I can control. You mentioned something that really has stuck with me and it was the age group that was so deeply affected with COVID and their mental health. Yeah. eight to 15. Yeah. We certainly have kids in that age group. I think a lot of our listeners do. What are the, some of the the tools and the things we can do moving forward to help them through that and to help them um, heal from that experience? I don't. It, one of the key things I always tell parents is, is please be very careful to distinguish between a mental health issue and a parenting issue. Mm-hmm. It's hard to do that sometimes. And we think everything's a parenting issue. But pay attention to the child's mental health. There are times when you, the, at least the pediatrician should be involved. And I think one of the one of the easiest the easiest barometers is a sudden drop in grades. If there's a full grade drop for a child, immediately take that child for an evaluation. That, that's it. May be they're in AP classes and it's just harder. It could be. But if you're also seeing change in dress, change in appetite change in sleep patterns, 
change in peers, then you've got something not parenting going on. The other thing is if you find drug or drug paraphernalia, you have a much bigger problem than you realize. Because if they're getting so lazy that you're finding it, it's mm. on, it's on big. Mm -hmm. So whatever mm -hmm. they tell you about, it's my friend's thing, or I really, oh, yeah, yeah, I smoked a little, yeah, I did, I'm coming clean, I, I did smoke weed just, just on Saturday, just with my buddies over here, you know, you know, I was out. No, you're finding the paraphernalia, you're finding the drug, it's it's big problem and has to be dealt with medically. Uh, short of that, uh, you know, don't be distracted, be present, stay mm -hmm. present, pay attention. Uh, a great way to do that, uh, open-ended questions. Uh, adolescent males and adolescent females uh, are different in how they respond to your approach on uh, an emotional level. <clears throat> the males, male, young males in particular, guys, you'll appreciate this. Actually, when you go face-to-face -face with them, they experience threat. It mm -hmm. makes them uncomfortable which is what what they are what they like to do is do something alongside of you so shoot some hoops driving in the car that's where males are open to question open-ended questions and dialogue but if you come at them directly they will shut down, down. it's a natural wow. phenomenon and you guys you guys you were young man right threat yeah well, how do you threaten a male? You go, you go right in their face. That's yeah, all. it's like, true. What's yeah. going on here? You push back immediately. What's amazing is you just saying that, that the, I, I automatically can think like, oh, with, with, with Bodhi and Jenny, like I know as soon as I confront them that way, I can feel them shrivel down. Yeah, and just go, go out and grab a basketball or a, or a baseball or a okay. football or something and do something alongside of them, do something with them, uh, and then they'll open up. Uh, and again, for mom in particular, driving a car with them next to you, that's a great time to kind of just meet, just throw stuff out there. For, same thing is the car is good for young girls, young women as well. Uh, but uh, women have a certain diurnal variation in their cortisol and hormone levels that around nine, 10 o'clock at night, they tend to be more open. So if you sit down, that's so true. Really? Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. Like, hey, baby, can we talk about something? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, I, as I'm like snoring, she's like, you know, let's talk about the day. It's hey, like... can we just talk about this real quick? You just nailed it on the head. Yeah. So it's a hormonal like... thing, not just a me thing. Excellent. Okay. Yes, it's, it's a biological thing. And biological you, thing. you know, go in the your young daughter's room and ask open ended questions. That's a good time to do that or sit on the side of the bed or whatever it might be. And, 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 uh, Females like face to face. They're very, very engaged with face to face. They love it. And but you know, we as men have to really like pay attention when we're engaged in face to face mm -hmm. contact because we we mm -hmm. don't. It's not a natural or comfortable uh, thing for us. Um, but young females do do get a lot from that and appreciate it actually too. So don't don't you know don't avoid it because they they're nourished by it. Have you noticed that with your girls, Randy, when you, when you sit with them? Yes, girl. I mean, I only have girls, but yeah. sitting, I mean, the, the process and the hormones and I'm in a house full of girls. I even have a, a, a girl dog, a female dog. And I mean, it's, <laughs> oh, it's just a lot of, <laughs> yeah, bless, uh, bless you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is so interesting and so helpful. I'm curious about something, but before I even go there, could you just give an example of an open-ended question? Because I know we, we all sort of speak that language, but for yeah, someone who's going, what is yeah. an open-ended question? Open-ended, avoid, avoid you, avoid you starting anything with you or, or are you or you are, anything you-oriented, no. 
Wonderment is a great instrument. I'm wondering. I'm wondering how school. I'm wondering if you're if you're feeling good. You know, if if there's anything that you've noticed that you want to sort of dig into a little bit, like, you know, I'm wondering why you're wearing black fingernail polish all of a sudden. I, I just I'm wondering, or I'm wondering if you know I I, I notice that uh, you know you're not talking to Sally so much anymore. I'm wondering if everything's okay. Just wonderment. And uh, how you doing? Is it's a perfectly satisfying, reasonable thing? Uh, everything cool? You know, you're it's anything. You know, I hope you'll come to me if you if you have any questions or concerns or anything's up. Uh, mm. You know, it, but but I've noticed and I'm wondering are very powerful ways in, and that's not just for athletes. That's for all of us. We you know we live in this sort of talk talk show television talk show world where people believe that confrontation is a thing it is not a thing <laughs> it, is, right. it is a horrible idea yeah. and it only throws everyone's force shields up so you can't get anywhere why don't you confront the uh, no 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 so it's, re it's really focusing on having conversations then. i'm wondering yes i noticed curiosity curiosity openness not uh you know i mean there's there's things you may have to confront of sure for sure uh being, being in a conversation or, with them though like that so it's not it's not a hey let's let's you let's sit down so you can talk to me about because then that it's, well, this is a brian you brought up another really important thing that i always say to parent which is it's not about you right. you you are out of the equation now i don't mean you're not important I'm meaning your feelings about the circumstance can't, and what you need or want that kid to do can't be involved. Same thing is true when you have to bring consequences, right? When I mean keep yourself out of it, for instance, if you need to, if you say to them, you know, your child, if you come home after 11 o'clock, you're going to lose X privilege, Okay. Uh, and if they come home, if they say come home after 11 night, you, you can't get angry or in, you can't let it affect you because your job is to be the executioner. You just drop the ax. It's like, Hey man, I told you what would happen and now mm. it's going to happen. I, it's on you. It's not about me. Am I angry, pissed, disappointed? Doesn't matter. It's going to happen. And that's that. You got to be a that, passionate executioner. It's hard. Such an important point. Such yeah. an important point. Dr. Drew, I feel like I should be taking notes, man. I'm you so... should. You should be. We'll be I listening back to you. You could just listen to the recording <laughs> over and over. Right? Yeah. yeah, this will be yeah, what I'm listening exactly. to for days. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. 
Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Drew, how did you go from internist into addiction medicine specialist? Because mm. I know you do so much with addiction. Yeah. How did you make that turn? So thank you for asking. I I, um, I, I was, I'm, have been and have practiced internal medicine my entire career. I was very engaged with it, loved it, taught it, became an assistant clinical professor. But my second year of residency, I started moonlighting in a psychiatric hospital. And one of the reasons I jumped at that job is my one of my big passions in undergraduate was neuroscience. And I always read a lot of psychology and I was always kind of interested in it. And I had a major depressive episode when I was 19 and, and I had was completely mistreated in terms of the treatment I got. And I thought, God, there's I, I don't want that to happen to anybody else. So I just I just had a passion for it. And uh, and I went to the psychiatric hospital. I started moonlighting there like once a week. And got more and more and more involved with them uh, to the point that when I was uh, going out and starting practice in internal medicine, I start, I became the director of their medical services. So I became sort of an expert in the medical care of psychiatric patients, which was a really important and interesting thing. I would say 20% of the time, a medical illness was actually causing the psychiatric syndrome or at least contributing to it. And psychiatric meds and all the medical complications, I, I became quite good at that. And I was interested in all of it. And loved getting exposed to it. But all the medical problems, really not all, but a lot of of the medical problems were down on the drug unit. That's where all the really significant illnesses were and things. And I was down there. And there, lo and behold, there was a guy at that time who was the director of the program at the time. It is the early 80s who had made a clinical discipline out of drug withdrawal. 
And I was treating heroin addicts and alcoholics all the time at the county hospital where I worked. No one had ever taught me a discipline of drug withdrawal. So I thought, wow, I've got to really learn this. It's, it's something I could become a, a good at and would really help people. And so I got very good at that. Then if people started asking me to see more addicts, more, you know, more people with these conditions so I could help with the withdrawal. And along the way, of, I liked the culture of the drug unit. It was very different than the rest of the psychiatric hospital. It was much more upbeat. And you know what you know, recovery programs are like. It's very colorful, a lot of interesting people. And, and I, um, I watched a couple people, young people, go from really dying of their addiction to recovering and being amazing. And I thought, oh my God, what, what was that? I want to understand what that was. And so I got much more involved in the treatment process of addiction, got some expertise in that, uh, spending a lot of time around the unit. The director of the program this is now 1990, asked me to be the assistant director. And, and the way he got me to agree to it, he was like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's, you're down there a lot anyway. It's just, you know, just around the holidays I leave and you'll cover the medical problems. We'll get a psychiatrist to cover the psychiatric parts. No big deal. Not, not a lot to this. Please, please do so. And uh, six, six months later, he quit. And that moved me into the position of director of the unit. And I was like, oh, man, I really got to really get my expertise up, which I did. Took me a while, but uh, it was a wonderful experience because it's you you really get a window into the human experience and the human brain and how all the wonderful systems work when they're the when they when they're under the influence of one distorted priority, which is do drugs above all else. That the survival system gets taken over, the and all priorities diminish. One priority emerges. And all the other wonderful systems of our brain, our interpersonal conduct, our intellect, our executive function, serve this distorted motivation. And it's extraordinary to watch and to work with. So speaking of addiction, I know you've worked with a lot of celebrities. You did celebrity rehab um, a while back. What do you see in terms of celebrities and addiction or just treating celebrities in general that people would be most surprised by? Because I think we we all tend to put celebrities up on yeah. a pedestal. So well, Brian, we're... we've all come here today. We we have a script. Yeah. We, got, we have to tell you something. Maybe. <laughs> right. Let me put my glasses back on. Hold on a second. So a couple things. Um, one is no different than anybody else. There's not like there's a treatment book for celebrities. It's just that to me, I find is bizarre. And mm. if you treat a celebrity different than anybody else, you are ill-serving the patient. It, 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 look, they need to recover like everybody else. Humility is a part of recovery. They need to do the program, shut up, get with the program, be a human with a condition. And that seems that. like one of the tough things though, with celebrities is that because of uh, the financial gain in, in what it is they do, they have access to much. So, more. so correct. And it's interesting. You go right there. Cause that's, that's the liability. And there's two aspects of that, but I'll tell you in a second. And there's a real component too. Some people have such high public profiles. It is, un, it's, you know, it's unpleasant to go out to a public meeting, but there are private meetings. There are way to do it. There's lots of people, there's ways to do it, but you just got to do the basics and just be another person with this condition. The money part has many different layers to it, right? The first part is, this is what people don't know. You asked me, that's what people don't know. The biggest liability to celebrities in treatment is they go back to work too fast. And it's because wow. everyone around them makes money, they make money, they love what they're doing, and they always go back too fast. Robert Downey is the poster child for this, right? 
Robert Downey tried to go back a couple of times, every time catastrophe. And then he went out to treatment and did not contemplate when he would come back. He, whatever it took to get well was what he was going to do, including never working again. If that was what it was going to take, he was going to do it. And now you have Robert Downey in his current career. Magically, yeah. things work out in recovery. If you do it right, people blossom in incredible ways. But it takes time. It can take a mm -hmm. year. It can take three years. It can take five years. It takes time. And that's hard for people. I get that. Interesting. Especially yeah. when you're midstream in a big career, it's really hard. Well, and especially people, when you have so many people working underneath you as well. And, and people don't do it. They don't do it. Right. They go right back to work and they go, whenever you see sober companions and all that stuff, that's people going back to, to work too, too soon. Mm -hmm. And it, it can kind of keep them okay for a while, but it rarely works. It, it really is tough. So there's that part of the money. There is the access part, as you said, uh, and and a large part of that is my profession, where doctors are turned on. Oh, my God, this important person thinks I'm a great doctor. And and by the way, celebrities in addiction will turn that on doctors, too. When they don't get what they want, they'll mm -hmm. go, they'll sell you things like, oh, you, I thought you were a great doctor. You're the worst doctor. I'm going to tell everybody what a horrible doctor you are. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to destroy you stuff. <laughs> It's just, it's look, if you understand addiction, you just go, what, just shut, whatever. Just come on. I want to help you get better. That's all. You don't, you don't feed into that. But most doctors don't know how to work, work with addiction. They just don't know how to do it. And they don't understand celebrities have to be treated exactly like everybody else. Standard of care is the standard of care for a reason. It's the best. Now, standard of care can be wrong sometimes, but getting extra care, you know, extra care does not make standard of care better. It's you're, you're getting, you're more likely to get bad care when you get special care. And then mm. there's the, you, I mean, it's a sort of goes under the money category. There's the, you know, the, they're insulated some celebrities by a group of uh, sycophants, frankly, and the sycophants won't risk losing their access to the individual to protect the human being. Mm -hmm. In other words, a prince was a good example of that, right? The guy was really in bad shape. And uh, nobody, in, uh, Michael Jackson was an example of that. Yeah. And Deepak Chopra, Deepak Chopra tried to confront him and was dismissed from the inner circle and never spoken to again. And that's mm -hmm. the power. That's what they can do. And that's how they die. That's how they get in trouble. Mm. Wow. Jeez. Do you have any insight on Matthew Perry? I know people really have been taking that hard. Uh, yeah, you know, obviously, you know, we we're we don't know what happened. Uh, obviously, he has a long history of addiction. My understanding is he'd put together two years of sobriety. That means he'd been struggling a lot. And if somebody's still struggling in their fifties, people tend not to get to see sixty if they have bad addictive disease. That, that's just a general observation. It's hard to live to sixty with this disease. He had many, many consequences from it. Uh, I also hear, I hear, I don't know if this is true, that he had emphysema from cigarettes. Was he a big cigarette smoker? And if that's true, then this could have been coronary disease. I mean, there's lots of possibilities. It could be all the above. Uh, I'm hearing that there was medication in the room. And if those medications were benzodiazepines, the Valium-like medicines, that's how you kill an opiate addict. You add, that's how Prince died. He wasn't going to die of the Oxycontin. When they added the Xanax, that's when he stopped breathing. So another thing people need to know, if you're an oral opiate user, it's really hard to die of taking oral opiates other than fentanyl. Uh, but other, other ones, it's hard. Unless you add the benzodiazepine, then it's really easy. Wow. Wow. I would not have known that. Obviously, we, we were just talking about Matthew Perry uh, yesterday. We were doing uh, we were doing an episode of the show, and we were talking about the long term effects of 
uh, his drug use and well, what, but he, listen what he'd to spoken this. Well, One of the things people have to know is people go, oh my God, we well, was using Vicodin for so long. One of the great breakthroughs with opiates and uh, opioids is they're harmless. They're totally harmless to the human body. They just cause the most severe form of addiction with the highest oh, recidivism. Really? And the way people take them is how they get into trouble. So shooting the drug is what ends up being the problem. With uh, Matthew Perry, taking so many of the oral opiates that your bowel stopped moving, you can rupture your colon. I believe he had that problem, Tom. Arnold yeah, I mean, he was he, he spoke yeah. about taking at one point 40 a day. Right? 50 Wasn't a day was the 50. average for my patient with oral opiate addiction. Yeah, I had some oral, oral opiate wow. acts would take up to 100 Vicodin a day. And those patients, the ones at 100, got nerve deafness too. For some reason, a very, very high dose of Vicodin causes, causes deafness. And if you remember, uh, Rush Limbaugh had that. He had deafness mm. from oral opiate use. So, I mean, it's not completely harmless, but it's they're mostly don't. I mean, meth destroys your brain, right? It just destroy, destroys multiple systems in the brain. Cocaine has lots of medical problems associated with it in terms of strokes and heart attacks and all kinds of things. Opioids are not really like that. They, they are relatively, in and of themselves, relatively harmless. And the irony is, cause the worst addiction with the highest recidivism. So that's wow. how people die. I uh, what an insight, uh, and yeah, I think for everyone I, I didn't that's know that. an incredible insight, Doctor Drew. I know we only have you for a few minutes left, and we have three questions. These oldish pod questions that we'd love to hit you with a little rapid fire, and then you got to run on it. All right, let's do yeah. it. So the first one is: if you could have one do over in life, what would it be? Oh my god. Right. <laughs> Maybe the, not these so are rapid the, These fire, are the right? easy ones. Yeah, we're just, <laughs> yeah. we're just pitching uh, these at you. you I, I am very lucky that, you know, I try to live my life now in such a way that that would never be the case, that there's nothing. Mm -hmm. But, okay, I'm going to divulge something here, that, that I ran into a friend of mine's car, and I got out of the car, and I, I convinced myself it was nothing. Uh, and he saw it. He actually watched it happen and he confronted me afterwards. And I was like, I will fix whatever that is. I don't know what's wrong with me. I will never do anything like that again. I will always live my life as though there's a camera going every second of my life. And that's how wow. I conduct myself. And that was 35 years ago. Uh, so that way I would do over, although I learned a great lesson from it. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. We talk, we talk about that. There was the purpose the, in the it. lessons. Yeah. The lessons that you gain sometimes from, from yeah. your stumbles and your falls. Yeah. Are, are yeah. What's something that you struggled with or gave yourself a hard time before? Oh, I have lots of stuff. I mean, you know, I was, Oh my God. When I was younger, body image, depression, anxiety, social phobia. <laughs> you know, I had, you know, I had, I had diagnosable conditions. I, I mean, I was really depressed. I had panic attacks. Uh, and like, like I said, I went to the healthcare system. I got horrible care. I'm grateful to be here now with uh, having been through good treatment and whatnot. I have no anxiety and I, I struggle with a lot, lot, lot less. So that's incredible. Randy, Amazing. you take the last one. Okay. Last for question. the last question. So, uh, you know, the podcast is called oldish to us though. Oldish is not an age. It's a place in life where you get to whenever that is where you have been through experiences and you garner some mm. wisdom. Mm. So, um, you know, what is something that you have learned or now know being oldish? So what has happened to me is that because the career I had working in an intensive care unit in a hospital, 
inpatient hospital, outpatient medicine, psychiatric hospital, addiction medicine unit. No one person sees that anymore. You're not, you're literally not allowed to do all of that. You have to be either a hospitalist or an outpatient doctor or a psychiatrist. I had this incredible experience for 30 years where I saw the human experience through a through a window that no one gets to see. It took a long while to accumulate all that wisdom, but as a result of it, I, I have a very clear and rich understanding of human beings, and I want to give that back as much as possible. And I think when you're old-ish, you start going, oh man, I, I know a few things. I better help other people with that and, and get share this information. Yeah, share yeah. it. Mm. We're so glad that you are sharing oh, it and so all glad that, that you are sharing do, your Drew, perspectives, I'm so happy your four that podcasts. we connected. Thank you so much for coming and doing Let's this. Let's go to dinner. Yeah. Let me do this again sometime. Absolutely. Oh, and here. I've got some neurological stuff to fill you in. I've got some I've health heard. stuff thing. Let's I can't do it. I do too. To That's part that. of being oldish. <laughs> I love it. You'll be okay. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers guys. Bye. Bye. Oh, wow. I, wow. that could have gone on for four hours. For four hours. What an incredibly intelligent man. He has yeah. lived such a life and experienced so many things. Oh. Um, I, I, I honestly, I felt like a dummy sitting here. <laughs> it's like, I, have, I just felt like a I have so little That's, to add yeah. to this conversation. Like Randy, take it away. please. I just no. felt like a sponge. I just wanted to listen to him. And the oh, more he man. said, I didn't even expect to go the directions that we did go. It yeah. was just like everything that he said, I was so into. And I, I just want more of it. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. I, I realized how, the one thing he said that I just, I, like, I want t-shirts of it, right, is something about the, the scientific method, the golden rule, the scientific oh, method. The golden rule, that needs to be. That the golden be rule was so COVID, key. Right? The open-ended questions and how to deal oh. with, uh, with you know, teenagers. But the, and, Dealing and with, younger with kids. boys and, and yeah. compared to girls and all the things that I honestly hadn't uh, I've I've Hadn't never really about. taken notice of yeah and yeah. but but as soon as he pointed him out I was like oh that absolutely right. applies makes sense yes absolutely. be conscious of that I, moving forward I've noticed that and I just didn't take any sort of action or or think it past noticing it and and it was just this fleeting thing mm -hmm. what an impressive impressive human Ugh. and as he said at the end he's lived this really unique experience where he got to witness human beings in in all sorts of different experiences through their medical and mental health journeys and where he's gotten to work. So his perspective is so well-rounded and educated. Um, and it's just fascinating to listen to him. Uh, I really am so grateful that he came and hung out with us, baby. Thank you for making that happen. Yeah. Thanks for that. Making let's, that hope, happen. let's hope that we can get him here another time because I'm sure we have a million more questions to, to ask him. We yeah. do. Um, and the thing about Dr. Drew too, I think the big difference is, there's sort of two different paths to go down. There's one path where you get that much experience, get that much wisdom by uh, going in different routes and medically seeing so many things coming up with conclusions and being very egotistical mm -hmm. or yeah. garnering all that wisdom and then going, and there's still so many things I don't know. And like still, he said like at the end, said, having wonderment and staying curious. And he was saying at the end too, when we were asking him the, the three questions and he was talking about in being oldish that you get to this point in life after experiencing all of these things where you just want to share them. You want to help people as much as possible with them. Yeah, It's, right. it's honestly what we 
what we love about doing this, but I uh, meeting and, and spending a little time with, with someone like Drew, um, God, what, what an incredible human being. I mean, what, yeah. what, what an amazing life he has dedicated to, uh, serving other people. And, and mm-hmm. he just could not be less selfish. He really right. could. Yes. Well, Look, everyone, stay tuned for the Q&A episode following oh. this in a couple of days. This one is going to be, be talking really about interesting. This one for a while. Yeah. And forgive us if we don't have all the answers like Dr. Drew, but we're going to yes. do our best here. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will be here for you in our greatest capacity and cannot wait to have your questions. Let us know what you thought of this episode because I'm already just, it's my favorite. This is my favorite. Oh, thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yes, you guys are amazing. Make sure you guys go and follow us on Instagram at, at oldishpod. And you can also go and leave us a message at our own hotline, which is 855-OLDISH-3. Make sure and write us a review. Leave us five stars if you loved it. Leave us five stars if you didn't. We it love helps. five stars. <laughs> we love five stars. Yeah, we like five stars. stars. Yeah. See you All next right. week. Bye, everybody. Bye. See you next week, everyone. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.